All right, we're looking at Genesis this semester, and um, before we begin tonight, I just want to remind you um, what I hope RUF can be for you is a, um, a place to just work out the truth, the truth claims of Scripture. It's a place for anybody to come, and uh, we assume that everybody in here is in process. Nobody comes in here with their life um, put together uh, with all your ducks in a row. If you try to come in here presenting that to us, just so you know, none of us buy it. Um, but really, this is a place to just come and process things. And, uh, and last week, what we've been doing as we look at the beginning of, of the book of Genesis is we examine the purpose of creation, what it was made for. And essentially, what I was trying to make the point is that creation is really just like folk art. Uh, and what I mean by this is it's not like commercial art. Commercial art is where the artist is trying to make something beautiful, but also will be financially successful. Folk art is art that's actually made just for the artist's sake of enjoyment. And that's really what creation is. Um, it's simply made for the artist to enjoy it. It was made for the, the delight of its creator. And what we're going to do today is we're going to zero in on the high point of creation, which is the creation of man and woman, and examine what does it mean to be human? What is the purpose uh, of mankind? So we're actually going to read some verses that we read last week and look at them a little bit more closely. This is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man... And our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that, God, that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the, uh, of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth of the day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray as we examine it, dear God, that um, you would be clear to us tonight, that uh, if I fumble over my words and, and if I say wrong things, dear God, that you would be present and your spirit would communicate through your word. Help us to forget the foolish things I say, dear God. And, be, um, and I pray that your spirit will be present with your word as we talk about it. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, several of y'all have been to our house. I hope uh, many of y'all come to our house throughout the course of this year. We're close to campus, and our house is a pretty fun place to be, I think. And, uh, and the main reason why is because my girls, I have four little girls, are a blast to be with. And for those of you all that have been over there, You'll notice there are a lot of toys that are prominent in our house. One of the more prominent toys are magic wands. And um, we've kind of been in the Tinkerbell phase for a while now, um, dressing up as fairy princesses, my girls, not me. Um, we, it's kind of, you know, anyways. Um, and so, you know, we run around the backyard and they play as princess fairies. And um, magic fairy wands are awesome for one thing, and that is performing fairy magic. They're great at it. And when, when magic fairy wands are used to perform fairy magic, you know what happens in the Wood household? 
love and joy and peace and laughter break out in our house and like joyfulness and happiness reign when we use magic wands to perform fairy magic. And it's a beautiful moment. But sometimes magic wands are terrible because magic wands sometimes are used for things more than fairy magic. For instance, every now and then they're used as a bludgeon, if you're familiar <laughs> with uh, the gladiator-type movies or medieval, that kind of stuff. And, and magic fairy wands make horrible bludgeons, and they're terrible for executing justice as bludgeons. And what happens is the girls try to use those wands for that purpose every now and then. Namely, namely they use them, I, I, I think I have it listed in here, as war hammers. And this is what happens when they use the magic fairy wands for something other than which they were intended. The wands break, and everything breaks down in our house. So the wands themselves break when they're not used for what they're supposed to be used, and everything in our house breaks down. Instead of joy and happiness and laughter, we have tears and anger and rage and alienation, and relationships are falling apart, and what were once you know, tightly bound twin sisters, best friends for life, are now mortal enemies, you know? The wands break, and everything around them breaks down. And this is my point. When something is used for a purpose other than that which it was created for, it breaks, and everything around it breaks down. And what that means is it's incumbent. Whether you're a Christian or not, you have to answer this question. What is humanity, and what is it for? Because when we live outside of our purpose... We cause pain, estrangement, loss, all the brokenness of the world. Sin is really just us living outside of our purpose. And that's why the world breaks down. And so that's what we're doing tonight when we look at this passage is we're asking, what then is man for? What is he and what does he do? And when the first thing we're going to talk about is man is a representative. And it's shown, we learn that from this word, this phrase called the image of God. You see it all over these verses Um, Let us make man in our image. Another way of saying it is after our likeness. And then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Again, in the image of God, he created him. Again, the repetition is the way a Hebrew writer emphasizes something. The image of God after his likeness shows up all over in just a couple of verses. So Moses, Moses is really communicating that the fundamental to what human is, the human is, is he's an image of God. And I feel like the image of God is one of those terms everybody's familiar with. We've all heard it. But if you asked any of us to define it, we probably wouldn't have a good answer. And so that's, I want to I I kind of work that out in this first point. What does it mean that we're the image of God? And if I asked you, what was God's primary symbol that he gives to the world I think probably most of us would say the cross, right? Maybe light. Maybe people a little bit more sophisticated would say something like bread and wine, right? Worst case scenario, we would say the Jesus fish, right? (laughs) Lamb. But what's being communicated to us in Genesis 1 is that God's primary symbol of himself to the world is actually man. It's actually man. Those symbols can be powerful, They're appropriate, but they're actually not God's primary symbol that he's given to the world. And from the beginning, the primary symbol that God set down in creation for the purpose of communicating who he is to the rest of creation is actually man. 
And it's not just one man, it's actually men, right? Us together is humanity, a dual gender humanity even, right? So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created him. So it's not just one man as the symbol of God, humanity corporately, both genders together, is God's symbol of himself given to the world. When you read the verses, it's obvious there's an emphasis on the word image, but this isn't the only place that that word shows up in Scripture. It's actually used all throughout Scripture. You find it in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar, unbelieving king at the time, builds statues of himself and tells people to bow down to statues of himself. Those statues are called images. Same Hebrew word. All over the Old Testament, whenever there are uh, statues built to other gods, to other deities, it's the same word that's using. It's an image of Baal, which is being built, which is supposed to be worshipped. And what all those images are is they're representatives of the king, of the emperor, of the Caesar, of Baal. And they're made for the purpose of representing that king, of representing Nebuchadnezzar to the world. That's what we are. These people who are hearing Genesis for the first time, who Moses is communicating to, they implicitly already understood what he was talking about because they understood. Well, when they understood that that's what Pharaohs, that's what Caesars did, they created images of themselves and placed them all about their kingdom in order to communicate to the kingdom or the empire that they are the king. And what Moses is doing is he's speaking into a context that they already implicitly understand. He's saying, y'all are that for the triune God, for the one true God. You're his image. You are his symbol to the world. If you've, um, you know, I don't know if the Ramses exhibit, if any of y'all have ever seen this, it's kind of a traveling exhibit and it's um, stuff that's excavated from ancient Egypt from Ramses II, who was the um, pharaoh when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And most of that exhibit, about 60% of the exhibit, is comprised of images of Ramses that they excavated all over Egypt and found that there were tiny ones, tiny wooden ones, golden ones, huge marble ones, because that's what pharaohs did. They made images of themselves and populated their kingdom with symbols of them to communicate to the kingdom that they are the king. (coughs) And see, the Israelites knew exactly what Moses was talking about when he used this language. We are little images of the king. And literally what that means is we are God's self-portraits. And this is huge. Because what the Bible is saying is that we are like God. We are his representatives to creation. We are his representatives to each other. And that might feel like a grandiose statement. It might, found, it might sound a little over the top. But even in our fallen and broken and imperfect understanding, our experiences still attest to the weightiness of being human. And this is what I mean. The death of a man, of a woman, of a child is more grievous to us than the death of any plant or animal. And we might try to say that man is just, is just kind of molecules that got lucky enough to combine into a certain way. But nobody that's ever lost a loved one, which eventually is everybody, ever acts like man is just lucky molecules. See, our experience testifies otherwise. Our actions betray us and reveal that even in our broken and bad and incomplete understanding of what it means to be human, there's something deeply horrible about evil, about injustice, about the loss of human life. Nobody's at peace with death. Nobody's at peace with death. 
We might try to say that death is natural, but nobody ever feels like death is natural. So we might try to say that, you know, there's nothing significant about being human, but the reality is all of our experience testifies to the fact that there's something weighty about being human, something grand. Otherwise, we wouldn't grieve the loss of humanity, right? We're God's self-portraits, and we're set in His creative work for the purpose of representing Him to the world. Now, what does that mean for us? It does something really interesting. It actually prevents us from thinking too highly of ourselves and also prevents us from thinking too lowly of ourselves. It prevents us from thinking too highly of ourselves and too lowly for ourselves. Um, one professor, a guy named Richard Pratt, uh, pointed me to an article that he stumbled on a couple of years ago. And the name of this article is just in a, a daily paper in Chicago. It was called The Irony of Being Human. And what happened in this article is this reporter found about, about two events that occurred in the same hotel on the same night in Chicago. A woman three floors up was in a hotel room by herself and killed herself. And police found her the next day and she left a note. And the note said, don't cry for me. I'm not even human anymore. I'm worthless. She felt as if her life had no meaning and it had no worth. And so she pursued what she thought was a logical course. Same night, same hotel. In the conference room downstairs, there was a New Age seminar on self-empowerment and self-realization in which the attendees chanted kind of at the end of the seminar the self-empowering mantra. And it was, I am God, I am God, I am God. And we've all bounced back and forth between those two poles in life, right? At certain points in time, feeling like our life is worthless, maybe not even worth living. There's very little value to who we are as a person. And so we estimate, our, we, we, we estimate what mankind is too lowly, right? And on the other hand, at times we've thought we've got it figured out, that this life is about how I think it should go for me. In reality, the role of everyone else in your life is about them kind of coming into and assimilating to your agenda for your life because it's about you, right? Have y'all, are you all familiar with this book called The Secret by Rhonda Byrne that was like on the New York Times bestseller list from like 2006 to 2008? All that book is is turning narcissism into a religion. And it's not very surprising that it was a bestseller. She just made narcissism into a religion. It was about orienting the universe to your wants and desires and making everything about you. And so at times we've probably all experienced thinking it's all about me, which is fundamentally thinking I am God, or my life is worthless. The Bible's notion of humanity contradicts both of those instincts. We're not gods. The world's not about us. And yet we're not just lucky molecules. What this doctrine does is it gives glory and humility to humanity. It gives us glory. C.S. Lewis says this, You've never met a mere mortal. We're more than an accidental result of biochemical processes. We're the royal images of the king. This means you can never look at anybody else the same way ever again. It makes every interaction with every person very weighty. Because every interaction with every person is an interaction with God's self-portrait of himself. A different self-portrait communicating something else about himself. And you see, how you treat a person's symbol or a self-portrait or how you treat a person's image always indicates what you think about that person. Here's what I mean. I don't know if any of y'all did this. Maybe we all did at some point. 
you open up your high school, junior high yearbook, whatever, and maybe at some point have desecrated the image of somebody maybe you didn't like. I'm sure nobody in this room did that, right? (laughs) Do you see what you did? When you saw their image, you treated the image the way you thought about them. What this means is the way you treat people indicates exactly what you think about God. So one of the hard questions is, who are we dismissive of? Who is it that you're dismissive of? Who do you despise? What are, the, what are the types of people that you avoid, that you can't stand? That person is God's representative. It's his self-image. Right? You can't order at Panda Express tomorrow the same way ever again and look at the person in the register the same way. That's God's image. How you treat his image is how you think of him. Right? That changes the way you argue with your roommate, with your parents, the way you complain about your teacher, the way you run away from awkward people. Right? Oh, wait, they all came to Stanford. I'm just kidding. I'm glad y'all laughed. Could have been my last day here. Um, every person in here is God's image. And how you treat his image is what you think of him. All your interaction with a person is given great weight now, isn't it? But what it does, while it gives great weight to humanity, it also gives humility. Because it says it's not about you. Your life, your own existence, serves the purpose of representing another. You're not God, and you're no longer allowed to believe that your life is about organizing everything around your wants and your needs and your agenda. We're self-aware artwork of the Most High, and we're tasked with representing Him. It's our belief in life that things should work out for us. It's that that destroys the fabric of all relationships, right? Selfishness is just another way of acting like we're gods, right? Believing everything should be oriented around my agenda for me. But you see, this notion of being God's image, it gives great weight to humanity and it also gives great humility to humanity because we're no longer about ourselves. So man is a representative of God. What do we do? We're told what man is, but we're also given a task in these passages. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, right? Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. In chapter 2, if you look at that later, it talks about how God creates the garden and sets Adam in the garden in order to work it, to keep it, and to serve the garden. Now to get into kind of the task of humanity then, the first thing I want to point out is this. Verse 28 is really interesting. Chapter 1, verse 28 is the first time God communicates to man, right? God said to them. Hear what God's first words are to humanity. I think this will catch you off guard. Be fruitful. Do you know what he's talking about? Okay, this is kind of amazing, right? And we're a conservative Christian group and we're about to say something crazy. Because God's first words to humanity is have lots of sex. Are you picking up on that? God's first word to humanity. It's not repent and believe. It wasn't, I want you to love Jesus. 
It was, y'all need to have a lot of sex, right? The problem with the Bible is actually not that it's anti-sex. The problem is actually that it's actually more pro-sex than we are. The sexual ethics of the Bible, we're not going to go into that much tonight, but I just want to make one small point. The sexual ethics of Scripture is not God not wanting us to have fun. It's actually God teaching us, namely, through monogamous relationship, how to have the best fun. And let me put it this way. I'm not going to belabor this, belabor this point much longer. But each person is unique. As a physical and a spiritual and emotional and intellectual being, everybody's different like a different musical instrument. Now here's the question. Follow me on this metaphor because I think it works. Who do you think will have a richer and fuller love and enjoyment of music? Someone who plays hundreds of instruments one time each or one instrument thousands of times? Y'all get that? I had had trouble communicating that before. Which means that our fooling around, hooking up, fantasy, pornography, whatever it is, besides being sin, it's actually just laziness because what it's doing is it's actually settling for bad sex. The Bible's actually much more pro-sex. That's the problem we have with the Scripture is it likes sex way more than we do. It actually wants people to have the best kind. So God's first words are be fruitful and multiply, but I want to fill out that meaning. It has meaning beyond simply the act of procreation. We're representative gods. We're statues that proclaim Him and His rule. And in the ancient Near East, this is what those statues served, the purpose that they served. They were everywhere. They were big and small. They were in town squares. They were in people's homes. And they were made out of all kinds of things, stone and wood and gold. And when a king expanded his rule and expanded his realm, he would make more of them and he'd put them further out and extend his power. And those images marked the world as this pharaoh's. And images and statues have real power. Because what would happen is a pharaoh would extend his kingdom and he'd begin to collect tax in these further towns where he doesn't have the resources to, in a sense, kind of um, have law enforcement all over the kingdom. And just Things were different then. We don't have highways, stuff like that. So a tax collector would go to the center of the town and he would sit under the statue of Pharaoh and collect taxes. And when they didn't have a statue of Pharaoh, it was much more difficult to collect taxes. And the reason why is because statues, images, have power. Because when he sits under the statue of Pharaoh, it's a powerful reminder of who rules. Statues are actually powerful. This is actually true in most political entities. All throughout Stalin, Stalinist Russia, he would build statues himself all around the land for the purpose of communicating, I rule. And we, we constantly use images to communicate things, right? Um, you know, when, a, when one regime falls, what are some of the images you remember from the fall of Iraq, if y'all were old enough? People tearing down statues of Saddam, right? His statues coming down were a symbol of his loss of rule, Right? God's command to Adam and Eve is not simply to have lots of sex, but isn't it, isn't it kind of glorious that his first command is coupled with one of the most pleasurable things we do? But his first command was to make more images of me and place them all throughout my kingdom. And it wasn't that creation wasn't already his. It was already his, but he wanted to mark it as his. His intention was to create more images of him and fill creation that all of creation know who their king is and know what he's like. 
So we're called to multiply. And then he says, he gives them the task of subduing and having dominion. Subdue it and have dominion. And he lists kind of all of creation at that point. And last week, I didn't go into this point, but we read the account of God's creation of the world. And in the first two verses, what happens is God creates, um, he creates basically his raw materials. And then in the verses that follow, so that's Genesis 1 and 2, the verses that follow, he takes the raw materials and he crafts them and shapes creation out of those raw materials. There's actually a different verb used in the first two verses. This is the annoying stuff that you learn at seminary, but it's kind of helpful. It's the verb for making something out of nothing. And then the verses three and following is crafting something that's already present into something, right? So there's this natural world, and he's begun to craft it, and then he makes man, and he makes man in the image of him, meaning something that's not him but is like him, and he gives man this command, subdue it and have dominion. In, ver- in chapter 2, verse 15, God says that he took man, and he made man, and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about stewarding, shepherding, crafting, enculturating, fashioning, and beautifying creation. He's talking about doing the very same thing that we just saw God do. We can't create something out of nothing in the way he does, speaking things into being, but we are called to take creation as it comes to us and craft it and care for it and make it beautiful. That's what subduing creation is. Subduing, it means understanding creation. It means education. Adam was naming the animals. In 1 Kings 4, we find about Solomon understanding the world better and better, being a very educated man. It involves caring for the creation. The word that was given when it talks about Adam keeping the garden is Adam is actually slaving for, he's actually serving the garden. The king's role is actually the role of servant, Right? So it's understanding the world, it's caring for the world, it's also crafting the world, doing the very thing that God did in the previous verses, right? As a representative of God, subduing and have dominion is doing what God has done. Now, a couple of points of application. Here's the first one. It means Christians are deeply concerned for the environment. If you believe the Bible, you should deeply care about creation. It's God's artwork. How do we treat the artwork of Picasso, right? How is the artwork of the greatest artists all over the world cared for in the Louvre? It's given great attention. It's given great care in order to maintain and protect its beauty, right? How then will you care for the artwork of God? There's another point I don't want to spend much time on. I'm not an environmental scientist. Some of you are going to become environmental scientists. I'm glad you are because we need Christian environmental scientists I'll only say this. It's kind of sad that Christians blindly buy into one political party's ideology on this issue about the environment. And we need to be discerning and open-minded in regards to both sides of the issue with our end goal being the preservation of the beauty of God's artwork. It means the Christian is an environmentalist. Here's something else this means. This notion of subduing and having dominion for us to care for created order, it demystifies the life of a Christian, the Christian life. It makes the Christian life less abstract and more concrete. Because the Bible says the physical world is God's handiwork. And the high point and the beauty of the mystery of his art is that he has sent an ambassador farmer or a royal gardener 
or an image artist to care for his handiwork, to shape it, to enculture it, to craft it, to groom it for his glory. This is what it means. Spirituality is intensely physical. I'm not saying spirituality doesn't have to do with what's going on in your heart. What I'm saying is it has both to do with what's going on in your heart and also what you're doing with your hands. Sometimes we have this notion that the spiritual life is something that's solely internal. That's not what Scripture teaches. What it means to be human the way God teaches us to be human is to combine who we are internally with what we do with our hands, with how we spend our day, with the concrete everyday experience of learning and working. See, all of a sudden, the Christian life is no longer abstract and mystical and internal. It's both lived in here and out here. A Christian lawyer who seeks justice and works hard is more spiritual than some guy who doesn't have a job and has a six-hour quiet time every day. That's what that means. A teacher who educates, the insurance salesman who sells a product that helps people in a time of need, the developer who plans a development for the purpose of fostering community and connectedness, the journalist who accurately informs people about the world around them, the web developer, the engineer who improved the quality and beauty of life, they're doing what humanity was made for, what God's original design was for humanity. And we should be unimpressed by any notion of someone being deeply committed to an internal devotional life, reading all the time, and yet is a terrible laborer. As if they're some kind of super-Christian. It's not impressive. It's actually spiritually immature. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying don't read your Bible, don't spend time in prayer. What I'm saying is it's wrong and foolish to think that what you do with your body is any less spiritual with what, than what you do with your heart. They're to go hand in hand. You are not just your body, and you are not just a soul. You are an embodied soul. That's what it means to be human. You are physical and spiritual. Those go hand in hand. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 7, you don't have these, but it talks more specifically about how God created man. And he takes about how, it talks about how God gathered the dust together and then breathed life into the dust and gave man life. Do you see what makes up man? The physical world and the spiritual world coming together. The dust is the physical world made by God, and God breathing life into the man is the spiritual life, the soul of man. Humanity is those three things together, our physical and our spiritual. It's reinforced in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul talks about the physicality of the resurrection, when God makes all things new again. And he's very overt about this point. It's going to be a physical body like the one that you have now, but fixed and restored. The resurrection is not merely spiritual. It's going to be very, very physical. The fall affected us internally, and it also affected us externally. And so salvation, God's work of new creation, restores both. And sometimes within Christianity, there have been movements that kind of decry the physical world as bad or less than or something to be considered more lowly. And the reason I think Christians start hating the physical world is not because it's bad. It's obviously good from the beginning of Scripture. That's kind of God's main point. It's because our hearts start to worship the physical world. And when we worship the physical world, we're not using it as it's intended to be used, which means we're abusing it. Now follow me on this. Our hearts start to worship the physical world, which actually is an abuse of the physical world, 
and everybody hates the things they abuse. And I think that's why Christians sometimes get off on the wrong foot and start hating the physical world and demeaning it. Sociologists talk about how the Germans didn't hate the Jews and so abused them. They talk about how the Germans abused them and thus grew in their hate for them. I think the reason sometimes we get caught thinking the physical world's bad is because we've misused it, we've abused it, and so we start to hate it. We've worshipped the gift instead of the gift giver. The two richest experiences that you will have in life just as a human living is going to be working well and producing something and bringing life into this world. Because these are the things we're made to do. These are spiritual activities. And we have a hard time thinking of our daily labor, like our, our problem sets, as a spiritual activity, right? But here we see our spiritual life and our physical life go hand in hand, and they're always meant to. And previously you might have been doing schoolwork, and maybe you have asked yourself the why question, and you haven't been able to come up with a good reason. You're doing it because that's what people do. You're doing it to make money, to make a name for yourself, to achieve, which are all very trite reasons, right? But if your calling as an image of God is to be a royal gardener, right, his representative to the world for the culture of crafting it, you're a craftsman serving the master craftsman, then all of a sudden your problem sets have a whole lot more meaning. This is why we need Christian landscapers. This is why we need Christian congressmen, Christian teachers, Christian doctors. People think, another phrase I think we all use a lot and it's hard to understand is giving God the glory. People think giving God the glory is trying to think about Him while you do something. If that's giving God the glory, then I don't want to have a Christian brain surgeon because I don't want him thinking about God while he's cutting my head open and doing surgery on me. I don't think that's what it means to glorify God. Just simply think about Him while you're doing some other task. And I'm not sure I've heard people say it's putting your accomplishments on God's mantle. I don't even know what that means. But what we can gather from this text is that an engineer who works hard with honesty and integrity and contributes to the design and development of a building that's beautiful and functional, he's doing what God called him to do. And he very well may be honoring God much better than the lazy engineer who posts Bible verses on his cubicle so other people can see them. The biblical doctrine of humanity, it actually binds our inner world, our hearts, with the outer world, with our hands together. We're to labor to use our hearts and our minds and care for and fashion creation and doing it with the character of God and with the love for God. I'll close real briefly. We're here in Genesis and we have yet to get to the point where the fall occurs, where everything goes wrong. What's really being described here is the way things are supposed to be. And we know that it's not that way. And in these opening weeks, we're just getting a picture of, of what God, of how He designed it. But what we know is our inner lives are broken and our outer lives are broken. And we, we labor with our hands, but our labor's frustrated. It's often not beautiful, it's often broken, it's often incomplete. And our inner life is no less frustrated. We don't labor with selflessness. We don't labor with God-glorifying love for God and our neighbor. Rather, we live for our own glory and for our own comfort and to make a name for ourselves. We subdue and have dominion for our own kingdom to perpetuate our own glory. And we multiply, but we do it for our own pleasure, so we treat each other like objects and our marriages fall apart. And we forego representing God and we represent only ourselves 
and our own interests. Do you get that this is the recipe for a world of pain and an absence of peace? Is it any wonder that life is hard, that it feels broken, and that we feel disconnected? We, we all walked into this room, we all walk into every room, we walk into hiding two things that we're confused and scared and falling apart and we're deeply insecure. The art of kind of living life at Stanford is really the art of hiding our deep insecurity. Somebody, one of y'all told me about the image of duck is prominent here, that a Stanford student is like a duck, calm and serene on the surface and frantic underneath. We're all trying to hide how frantic and insecure we are. We're broken images. We're glimmers of something that was once glorious. The way Francis Schaeffer said it is he said, humanity is a glorious ruin. And it's because we live for a purpose other than that which we are intended. And so salvation, as it unfolds in Scripture, is God restoring our humanity. Salvation is found in the one that Paul describes in Colossians 1. Jesus is described as the one who is the perfect image of God, so much so that he actually is the fullness of God. These are Paul's words. And he came and he lived and he imaged God perfectly in this world because he was God. And in him we see perfectly who God is. And we see that God's not just a creator, but he's also a gracious savior. When you see Jesus, you see what the perfect image of God is. This means when you learn something about Jesus, you learn something about God. And one of the uniquenesses, in fact, the primary uniqueness of the Christian God is that he's not just up there. He's not just distant, but he's here. He came and he walked this earth and he lived the way we lived. And this means when you see Jesus, you see God. This means when you see Jesus cry about the death of a friend, you see God cry about death. This means when you see Jesus feed hungry people, you see God feed hungry people. This means when you see Jesus fellowship with a prostitute, you see God fellowship with a prostitute. This means when you see Jesus stand silent before false accusations, you see God stand silent before false accusations. That's the perfect image of God. And in Jesus, we learn about plan, God's plan of salvation, which is to restore our humanity and restore our God imaging. And Jesus didn't come simply to forgive us, to give us a pardon so that we could kind of move on and do our daily life until we die. He came to restore us. And later in Colossians, Paul says, you're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of your creator. How does he do it? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. He grants pardon for our sins at the expense of his own death in our place. And not for the purpose of simply removing our guilt, but for actually restoring us to the task we were originally designed for. We're both saved from something and to something, namely back to humanity. God's restoring us as image bearers. And he doesn't compel us to that restored task of imaging God. He doesn't compel us by guilt. He compels us by love. He compels us by the removal of that guilt by the blood of his son. So that we long to image God, not out of terror and guilt, but actually out of love. It's in those moments when God's grace radically breaks into our hearts that the image of God begins to be restored in us. And you begin to be more about him and less about yourself. 
which actually means you're becoming human. Let's pray.